This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. Great to have you with us. I'm Helen Farmer and on today's episode we are asking can kindness change a habit in conversation with a behavioral change specialist and ultimately busting some myths about the things we do subconsciously and consciously too. Meeting a woman who's raising awareness around cancer through her art and a cancer warrior. She says the condition took her breasts but not her spirit for meeting an award-winning chef plus Dr. Paul McNamara on hand for your live orthopaedic clinic. And in our climate conversations with Dubai Holding, we're looking at the business of food in professional kitchens and in our own. What can we be doing to make a positive impact on the planet? Joining us live on studio to help me and you out, Shizu Azadi, the author of The Kindness Method. She's a podcaster and a behavioural change specialist. She says, tough love is over. Kindness gets things done. Great to have you in Dubai. How are you? Very well, thanks. Thank you for having me. You're normally based out of London, but coming over to help out some clients here in the UAE with with their behavioural changes, including habits being a big part of your passion and the work that you do. And have you noticed any differences between the challenges that people in Dubai have regarding breaking habits versus the UK? Not at all. I have to say, universally, across the board, I find both the habits that people want to change and the sort of uh, mistakes, if you will, that they make whilst trying to pursue them and sustain them are pretty much the same across the board. Can we start with real basic bread and butter? What exactly is a habit? How do you define it? Well, we're always engaging in habits. Anything we're repeating, you could be in the habit of doing nothing, frankly. Sounds great. (laughs) Yeah. And the way I see it is to form a habit, to embed a habit in its most simple sense is to do something difficult, make a difficult choice in a row until it becomes easier and automatic, the same way you would master anything else. So how and why are habits formed? What's happening necessarily in our behaviours that leads to our brains and then it becoming this repeated behaviour and sometimes a completely subconscious behaviour? I think a lot of the time um, a habit which is now problematic for us at some point began as a solution to something. So I think a lot of the times uh, the coping strategies, for example, say it's comfort eating or drinking or procrastinating, any of these kinds of things, a lot of the time we focus on the negatives of uh, when we want to change them. We focus on what's wrong with the habit mm-hmm. and think that that will motivate us. What can actually give us a lot more useful insight is working out what's right about the habit. What purpose is it serving? What is it allowing us to do? What did it allow us to do that perhaps now uh, we don't need it for anymore? Um, And so really inquiring that way as to what is the point of this? Why, if I'm smart, do I continue doing it as opposed to beat yourself up about it? I think that's a big problem for a lot of people. You get into the shame spiral of why can't I? Let's use comfort eating as an example because a number of people have got in touch about that. Mm. Let's use comfort eating because I think a lot of people, and I've 100% hold my hands up, have have done this in the past. I think about the pandemic, I was stress eating, emotionally Mm -hmm. eating. And sometimes it was boredom. Sometimes it was distraction. Sometimes it was having what the Japanese call kind of like having a lonely mouth and not really knowing, <laughs> what, knowing what to do with your hands or your mouth. And then it's like, oh, I'll just go back to that red licorice. Mm-hmm. So if we're breaking it down, as you're talking about there, finding that why and that that root of it all, can you kind of extrapolate that as an example? Yeah, I think COVID is something that I talk to a lot of people about. And that's a perfect example because people were in need of comfort. Soothing. People were stressed. People were anxious. Uh, appropriately so. 
And so comfort became something that we required. So if you take the judgment out of it, let's say, for example, there were things that you did prior to COVID that gave you comfort that now you didn't have access to connecting with your friends, et cetera. Now what's happened is that you're, that the that the food is on heavy rotation. And so you're normalizing and creating new associations with it. And it's the only source of comfort that you're getting. And perhaps your tolerance increases to it. Perhaps if we, this happens a lot of time if you're talking about sugar, for example, um, and you just normalize it and normalize it. When you were talking there, my, as a practitioner, what I was thinking, right, is this is a person who is in need of comfort, calm, uh, coping strategies for stress, one of the things that you go to happens to be sugar. Mm-hmm. The thing that you want to look at is what am I getting from it and can I get that from anywhere else instead so that this particular strategy isn't doing the heavy lifting. What you don't want to do is, tr- A, be, be so ambitious that you think you're going to create a world that's got no stress, no anxiety, no boredom, no low mood. Um, or B, beat yourself up about it and sort of white knuckle it and leave yourself without, frankly, your friend yeah, that the co- thing that's comforting you. That coping mechanism that ha- has actually served you to an extent. Exactly, because you've decided now it's bad because the scales have tipped. Mm-hmm. So this is where the kindness comes in. Yes. So tell us a little bit about this, because it sounds like exercising some self-compassion is really key. Yeah, and I think it's important to talk about this and redefining kindness, because a lot of people say to me, for example, with the comfort eating, if we extend that and say, Okay, I'm being kind to myself. Some people will go, well, I'm never going to change my comfort eating habits then, aren't I? Because me being kind to myself, just eating whatever I like all the time. And I always say to them, if you start defining kindness the same way you would um, if you were helping someone you love to achieve something difficult, you would define kindness as doing the thing you'll be proud of the next day. Mm-hmm. You would define kindness as doing the thing that serves you long term. You wouldn't define kindness as giving them advice like, oh, you can only start on Monday and you totally messed up. And, you know, you would create the conditions in which they could do something difficult until they adjusted to it. Mm -hmm. And so both internally and externally, what I do is to help people create those kind conditions that enable them to have more impulse control, to feel worthy of taking care of themselves and to feel capable through the pursuit of habit change of getting more and more ambitious about the habits that they change. So it can be these incremental changes that will boost your confidence so you start to feel more capable. I think it should be. I think a lot of the time what people tend to do is they start with the hardest thing and they think, right, I'm just going to go extreme. Or they start with everything at once, you know, like mm-hmm. proper all or nothing trans- transformation, I'm a new person. The first mission you set yourself, the sweet spot is to do what you said you were going to do for a period of time. Consistency. And also just trusting yourself from an identity perspective, Mm -hmm. saying, I'm going to set a goal. And the sweet spot is, it's hard enough that you'll feel proud of yourself if you keep it up for a few weeks, but it's easy enough that you don't doubt your capacity to actually keep it up. Then after a few weeks, you review. But but in a few weeks, you're going to be in a totally different mindset because you're going to feel like someone who did what they said they were going to do. And that boost in self-efficacy can be enormously helpful and make you a lot more ambitious about other goals you set yourself. You mentioned there just off air something really interesting about kind of mental fitness, being proactive rather than reaching out to an expert when we get to crisis point. I don't think many people do that. No, and I think it's because we need to look at mental fitness the same way we'd look at physical fitness. You know, it's not when you're at your least fit that you feel inclined to go sign up to the gym, mm-hmm. you know, or, or rather to stay on track and actually turn up. And I think preemptively, if we can just factor in the fact that life right now will invariably be, have periods of stress, low mood, boredom, etc. Mm-hmm. And if rather than waiting until we're exhausted and then going on a retreat, 
it would be really useful if we could just pepper throughout the day tiny habits like like tech for example you know phone use don't look at me like that huge thing (laughs) no I'm the same I mean I used to go to bed you know when you're going to bed and you're looking at something and the phone falls on your head yeah and it's a reminder of like just go to bed yeah (laughs) Um, things like that tiny tiny change very often it's the things we decide not to do as opposed to the things that we do that make a real change let's go to the text line Um, a message here um, exactly that destiny saying I've got into a really bad habit of scrolling reading and generally spending far too much time on my phone. I need to get it back. Would appreciate tips. I've tried timers on apps, but I just turn them off. Family live in my home country, so I don't want to give up my, my smartphone, but would really appreciate some moderation. It's really hard. It's a bit like food. You know, it's not like smoking where you go, I'm just not going to smoke anymore. Mm-hmm. And But we need food. Um, we arguably need our phones to an extent. It's when, as you said earlier, it stops serving us and it starts to become this niggle and we can't say how many hours is too much it's going to be so personal to to people but if destiny's saying you know she feels like she's spending too much time what would you be wanting to put in place with a client to start to temper that a bit i think as with anything else you need to start with an honest baseline so a lot of the time we don't want to admit where it's actually at because we're embarrassed and a lot of the stuff Mm -hmm. that we do secretly or not even secretly there's just not witnessed by other people you know but people will go oh my god i'm really shocked by my screen time take the judgment out of it And just look at the numbers and try to ask yourself, when I come away from certain apps, have they given more than they've taken? And have I actually got what I wanted out of them? I think it's a little bit disempowering to like hide stuff from ourselves. Obviously, we can, you know, you can make stuff, you can add friction, you can remove your your logins as a reminder to yourself. But ultimately, you'll, you'll do whatever you want. But if you think to yourself, right, on the days where for the first 10 minutes of the day, I don't look at my phone... I tend to end up having a shower or I tend to end up making a smoothie or I tend to end up being more intentional or doing an affirmation, whatever it is. And then that has a knock on effect on the next thing and the next thing. Mm -hmm. And the important thing really isn't to wait for some transformative sort of mindful uh, realization because you've done this. It's to get it's to feel empowered about the fact that you are being discerning when it comes to how what you consume throughout the day whether it's food, whether it's, uh, you know, content coming out of your phone or Twitter. I mean, now more than ever, we're, we're watching the news all day and really thinking to yourself, what purpose is this serving? Is this emptying my cup? And also deciding if I'm going to be discerning rather than saying I'm never going to look at this app again. Because when we fail at doing that, we just think, well, I haven't done it. And we go back to where we were. Classic January mindset. Yeah, exactly. It's about thinking, OK, what time in the day is it actually quite enjoyable for me to do this? What time in the day does it not mix in with other stuff? What am I actually missing? Because a lot of the time with the scrolling, we can catch up in like three minutes, you know, but we're doing it throughout the day. It's interesting. You know, Johan Hari spoken a lot about addiction and the root of it being disconnection. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, because a lot of your work is inspired in the UK around addiction treatment. Could you kind of speak to that? Because I think about phone addiction and I, I'm definitely, Destiny, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm definitely spending too much time on mine by my own definition, by my own measurements. I think it is about connection for me. But when you're thinking about addictions in particular, how does your kindness method kind of come into play there? It's interesting because where I worked in clinical addiction before, there was a clear definition because, you know, we were looking at substance misuse and people withdrawing and risk. Now that I work in more generalized habit change, people will define addictions um, and be... One person may say, I have an addiction and they are consuming or using way... Uh, less than another person who says that they don't. And ultimately, the way I see it is if the negatives are outweighing the positives and you and you feel that you're powerless over changing, then you have a dependency or an addiction or a habit, what, you know, whatever word you want to use, 
um, that it would probably benefit you to change mm -hmm. in terms of your quality of life. You know, aside from the labeling or whatever else, if you want to stop doing something and it's harming the things that you care most about um, and you're not able to do it, then that's probably going to be uh, quite damaging to your day-to-day -day quality of life. DG's been in touch saying, hi both, what about someone else's addiction um, or habit? How can you help someone you love? That's hard. This is really tricky and I get asked this a lot because in the addiction world, obviously, we talk a lot about enabling and am I enabling or should I let someone do it by themselves? And of course, I don't think anyone worth their salt would, would sit here and tell someone they've never met exactly what to do about their loved ones. One thing I have found helps enormously, though, is to tell that person that the support is available for them. And then in the meantime, take care of yourself so that if and when they come asking for that support, you don't feel like you're in that I told you so resentful, exhausted kind of mood. You can give fully mm -hmm. and be consistent um, and reliable to that person. I know it's really difficult and it's on different scales. You know, another thing that can help is to have a really honest, open conversation with that person about, uh, you know, hypothetical change, we call it. It's in a year's time, where do you see this going? Just asking the sorts of questions that, frankly, I would ask as a coach Let's paint a picture of how things go if you carry on and let's paint a picture of how things go if you don't and start working backwards from sort of um, mitigating the damage, if you will, and preempting what will happen. And people sometimes it'll be a real wake up call for them, even just thinking about that. Because we don't often pause and kind of hold that mirror up to ourselves. And it sounds like, you know, DG or indeed anyone in those situations, it's, it's all acting out of love. Everyone's got the best intentions for those that, those that they love. But I, I think that's really, really powerful to think about. Control what you can control. Look after you. Yeah, absolutely. And also lead by example. If you're taking care of yourself and you're consistent, you're empowered and positive and resilient and you look well, uh, the person who you're trying to inspire to do that thing um, may well be inspired by that more than being told what to do or lectured, you know. Um, you mentioned affirmations earlier. And I wondered if you could perhaps speak to that and how perhaps they can play a role in breaking a cycle that might not be serving anyone any longer when it comes to hab habits, bad habits, so to speak. I think that ultimately when it comes to habit change, uh, whatever you're trying to change, uh, when it comes to behavioural change, it comes down to the conversation you have with yourself that talks you into doing or not doing something in a row until it becomes easier. doesn't matter how many apps and plans and books and whatever else you have. You have you've got to have a conversation with yourself when your plans don't go to plan and no one's watching that talks you into doing something hard in a row. And a lot of the time people realize when they're trying to do that, that the conversation that they have with themselves is wildly un unhelpful. And not only unhelpful and unkind, but untrue. And so it hasn't been updated in a really long time because we don't audit the way we speak to ourselves. Even when we change and things have changed, we've disproved all those horrible things we say. We don't take a moment to go, hold on, why am I still saying that about myself? So what can help a lot with affirmations is to say things aloud that are just true. You know, for Facts. example, I'm the sort I grew up thinking I'm the sort of person who starts things, doesn't finish them. Oh, my right. goodness. That's one of mine. Yeah. I'm sure you've started and finished loads of stuff and since. Do you know what's really interesting is I just said it to my husband last week. So I um, I started an improv course, which, trust me, was so out of my comfort zone. I, I nearly vomited. <laughs> um, and we had a social on Friday night. And I was like, I was absolutely exhausted. And I was like, no, the easy thing to do would be to sit on the sofa and just, you know, avoid the traffic. I was like, no, I've been to every single class. I've done my showcase. This is the final part. It's saying thank you and it's saying goodbye to everybody. And I needed that to kind of dispel this limiting belief that I've been telling myself the whole time that you start things and you don't finish them. Exactly. And I've got to, I've, it, that, that one is a really big one for me. But you've written a book. I mean, my goodness, what more tangible proof do you need that you finish projects? Quite. And, but, the, but the thing is, again, we didn't up, 
you know, we don't have a place where we update it. And so if you, for example, started now, because you will lapse back onto the old ways, you know, that pathway hasn't gone away. You're just you're just embedding a new one, right? Mm. So you will lapse back and it would be worth you, for example, starting to practice saying, I'm the sort of person who starts things and finishes them. I'm the sort of person who finishes things. And in in my sense, I mean, people use affirmations in all sorts of different ways. But in my work, it's about reminding ourselves to audit the conversation we're having with ourselves because it's absolutely game changing. And in the end, it's all we've got. We've run out of time. We have run out of questions. I know you're heading back to the UK on Thursday, but can we get can we get you on a Zoom in the future? Absolutely, I'd love to. Thank we've, you. We've had questions about changing habits at work. We've had questions about procrastination. Um, in the meantime, though, your book is available. Sharizu, where can people find it? It is the Kindness Method. It's available everywhere in all good bookshops. You're on uh, Instagram as Amazon, well. Amazon, all of it. Yeah. Now your Instagram is a fantastic resource. You've got some brilliant excerpts. You've got your advice as well. Where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, Instagram, Twitter, all the normal places. With a name like mine, you won't struggle. And if you do and you want me to send you the link, send me the word kind and I will send you that Instagram. Thank you so, so much for your time. Real food for thought there, genuinely. And um, we'd love to have you back and address some of the issues that we weren't able to get to today. Thank you. Great to have you in the city and uh, speak soon indeed. We are rightly so continuing our conversations around breast cancer awareness all the way through the afternoon. I'm going to be speaking to an amazing award-winning chef who has not let that diagnosis hold her back. That's in about an hour's time. And now we are raising awareness through art. Lena Nimmer is a digital illustrator who, in collaboration with photographer Liam Barrington, is going to be holding an art exhibition during Art Dubai featuring pictures of cancer patients wearing beautiful, colourful scarves called Scarfy. I'm wearing one right now. Lena, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Helen. Tell me about your work as a digital illustrator. Where did it begin for you? Because it sounds like it's been in parallel to a corporate career as well. Which is I just quit. Yay! Yes. <laughs> my brook. Plan A all the way. Good. Um, That's, I love this. Yeah. Because if you, you know, if you about, don't follow the heart, uh-huh. it's just going to keep haunting you, yeah, yeah, isn't right. it? So you, you've, you've quit the corporate job and kind of following your heart and your talent, my goodness. When did you start becoming really, really passionate about art and having it as part of your life and now your career? You know, I have a very um, old story where I used to hang around in my friend's studio. He, he used to, he's an artist, he's in Sudan. Um, and I think that just kept going and going till I was doodling just with, with my Sharpies. And uh, during COVID, that started to be all really my go away too. And it was my way of meditation, my flow. But I started to have a lot of art, which is I, I really wanted to do something with it. But I didn't want just to make it as something that people just hang. Mm. I wanted people to wear it, to be a statement. And that's where Scarfy came. Um, I was thinking about a medium and I couldn't think about anything better than scarf because a scarf is the in my opinion is the most resilient piece of fashion that have existed and witnessed human resilience and it's journeys. so true to think about how it's been incorporated and interpreted through different cultures through time exactly. as well tell us a little bit about your background and how perhaps scarves have been woven into your well, upbringing i come from sudan i grew up in yemen and uh, if you know any of this they are very deep in culture but yet very complex and that, that i had a lot of journey with, with the scarf myself, from wearing it as a head wrap to just like, you know, a shawl on me or just wearing it as a top. 
Um, scarf for me is a statement. Scarf is um, a journey. Scarf is for me a representation for human resilience. And that's why I'm here today. Scarves are colorful, joyful, cheerful, and they are hopeful. And hopeful is what brings me to talk about the My Why initiative. So let's talk about this um, raising awareness and, and celebrating actually people who have been going through some of the hardest times. Do you have a personal connection when it comes to raising awareness around cancer? Uh, you know? Yes, I've lost my dad to cancer um, so and currently my brother wife is battling. Um, with with cancer as well, um, so the the witnessing such journeys really moves something in you, and not only cancer patients, I would say, but we're going to use this platform to talk about all the resilience um, in humans' stories. Um, I believe human um, experience would would be incomplete without stories about resilience. That's what I believe in, um, and I wouldn't have chosen anything better than my scars as them being made from recycled plastic bottles, 100%, to raise also awareness. We're all responsible of taking action um, with all what's happening with the global plastic pollution. There's also... <laughs> That's delicate of saying. They're also really gorgeous to look at. Okay, <laughs> I'm Ta- so happy you're wearing one I of am them. wearing one and it's, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. Tell us a little bit about... The fact that every scarf has a story, a message. Oh, wow. That's 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 what brings us back again to the storytelling in the scarves. Um, as I said, colorful because of all the vibrant colors, uh, cheerful because of the smile I see in everybody's face once they read the stories. I'm sure you had one in your face once you read the story. I of did. Yours. <laughs> and then hopeful is because of the... We come together through our stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, what brings us up to here and what makes us hit the road again and do and do want that one thing is courage. And courage by knowing that we're not alone, that really that takes a lot of the pressure of us mm-hmm. um, and, and help us to do something. So I really see Scarfie as a, as a movement of art, love, hope, um, and also raising awareness towards sustainability because if... Change can be wearable. Change can be colourful. Change, and, and it's a conversation starter. Yeah, you know, it's definitely. What, what, what are you wearing? Who are you wearing? What's, what's it all about? You're coming to a room already. You have a story to break the ice and connect pe- to people with. Tell you, us about then collaborating with Liam Barrington, who's taken the photos for this exhibition. How did you guys meet, and how do you feel like he interpreted your message and your mission? Wow. Liam is very special photographer, very very special photographer, and uh, we saw his um, his photos through my friend Nana, who's also with me here. And actually, she's a mentor to me. She's more than a friend, um, and um, he he took big photos of her um, last fashion show, and this is where we saw what he's capable of doing, and um, definitely portraits is one of his strengths. And uh, we're, we're, we're all collaborating in this together to bring more awareness to this to this cause. Yeah. Would you think about kind of the next stage? What are you planning? Are you looking for any other, anyone else who's battled or is battling cancer to come forward and share their story with Scarfie? Of course. Um, so the idea started with share people who are battling with cancers and sharing their, their story. But I really think this, the, the idea right now evolved to... We have a lot of resilience historians and they're not only around cancer... And we're here to request people to really step forward and share their resilience stories, either with, uh, with cancer or with any other resilience hopeful story that they think the world would be a better place by hearing. Um, and that could be shared through direct messaging to any of our social media platforms, scarfy.ae. And it's scarf with a Y at the end. Tell us about the Y. Oh, you know, 
that's the magical question. So scarf is a scarf. The why is ma- what makes everything difference. Uh, why is the affectionate way in Arabic of calling the things we love. So you say my home, my love, my cat, my car, my friend. So um, and then the why also for me is the identity, my story, my statement, what I stand for and what everybody's story that they're going to share. I guess apart from reaching out to you on social media, where can people get a hand on these beautiful scarves? Is it looking to raise awareness through sales and, and putting that money towards a good cause as well? Exactly. So the Y initiative, uh, people will be, we will be taking people, selected stories will be captured by a port- beautiful portrait by the special photographer Liam. And uh, on top of that, they're going to be gifted a wearable art scarf. Um, and on top of that, we're going to be exhibit- exhibiting that um, at our Dubai And when we do that, uh, we're going to be donating the returns that come from the exhibition to work to Dubai Care um, to support cancer patients. Thank you so, so much. Julie saying beautiful, beautiful, inspirational interview. I'm buying a scarfy today. Um, You you can reach out whether you want to find out more about these beautiful pieces of wearable art. And as I said, the one I'm wearing now, I chose this one. So the way you presented it to us, we could choose a scarf that kind of connected with us. What does the one I'm wearing signify to you okay this calls uh, the the view and i call it the view towards your life the, the view towards everything kind of you zoom out and look at things but from beauty the view um of, of from your window to the beautiful um, um everything so it's like it really gives you that hint of, of hope of Aww. looking at things from up yeah. Um, a message for you, Lena, saying, I'd love Scarfy's details. I would love to do her an inspirational talk in my school. Would you, are you open to meeting I'm, more people? I'm very open to meeting everybody who believes in magic. The art of expression, timeless, courageous scarves with a story, sustainable, recycled plastic, and what a beautiful mission. And, and really an incredible medium to tell the stories of others. And a big shout out to Liam as well. It's going to be fantastic to see those photos really in front of us. It is Scarfy with that all important Y dot A-E on Instagram. You can reach Lena there. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much it's for having an me. Hannah. Absolute pleasure. Joining us wearing pink so appropriately in the studio now is Prachi Kulkarni, a 37-year-old award-winning sous chef and a breast cancer warrior. I don't even know where to start with you, the number of strings you have to your bow. You're so young. Um, tell us a little bit about getting that diagnosis. Prachi, when did it happen? Uh, so that was in 2021. Uh, prior to 2021, I had ran about seven ma- half marathons, wow. and it was supposed to be my second full marathon. I had signed up for the virtual Boston Marathon. And then I slipped on the pavement outside on the street, and I hurt my leg. So due to uh, the knee injury, I couldn't run my marathon. So I decided since I have taken three days leave for a full marathon, I said, why not do a health checkup? So I ended up doing the pap smear test and I ended up doing my blood tests. And that's where I found a lump in my breast. Gosh, so and complete coincidence. You never would have had that check. If you never. Had I run that marathon, I wouldn't have even checked myself. Oh my gosh. So they found a lump during an ultrasound or self or, ex- or physical examination? Uh, I found it. You found it. I found it. And it was something completely different. So I found it very weird. So I went to the hospital and uh, they did a biopsy. But the biopsy came benign, meaning it's not cancer. 
and then after that when they they offered to do a lumpectomy where you remove a part of the breast where that is that has the lump i went through with the lumpectomy because i said i don't want any kind of a lump i got it done when i got it done and i went for checking up the wound with the doctor is when he told me that your lump was actually cancer what yeah <laughs> now there's a genetic aspect as well to what you experienced tell us a little bit about that Yes yeah, so once that happened I moved on to an oncologist and then that's where my age came into play and the doctor said I'm too young for it uh, for breast cancer so which is the reason she did the blood test which gives you the genetic uh, or mutations if there are any and turns out that it was genetic mutation which runs in my family <laughs> did you know I didn't I knew that my grandmom passed away with cancer but I didn't know which so tell us then about the decision that you took at that point Prachi I went ahead with the treatment. I trusted my doctor blindly. Uh but at that point of time I was in denial because I said a month back somebody told me I don't have cancer and now somebody tells me I have cancer. Mm-hmm. So sitting in the surgeon's office I was still wondering are you sure or are you going to come back to me and tell me something else tomorrow? <laughs> now with that brachygene we're talking about kind of women's health. So you took the decision to have double mastectomy and I understand um some gynae surgeries as well, fallopian tubes and ovaries removed, is that right? That's right. So basically uh because of the genetic mutation, I'm susceptible to uh ovarian cancer after the age of 45 and pancreatic cancer as well. But uh ovarian cancer was one of the things I decided to get rid of because if I did not do it now, I would eventually do it. uh after the age of 45 so i don't want to go through it again and you might as well get rid of it might as well <laughs> in for a penny when you're under um so tell us then about chemo because it's been really interesting to speak to women over the last few weeks and of course in my personal life you know friends as well about their different experiences those good days and those really really bad days how was chemotherapy for you and what other treatments did you have as part of your plan so the interesting thing is after my first chemo the next day i had long hair which was up to my shoulder I went to the salon I cut them off. I cut them off like a razor like 1 cm small because I said I'm going to be one step ahead cancer is not going to make me bald. So I went ahead and I got them or you know raised off and the women there they were hugging me. I said no those are the least of my problems. <laughs> Losing hair is the least of it. So I, but I decided I'm going to stay one step ahead all the time. And so eventually it I would advise that to anybody going through it is because you see the transition happening rather than I had long hair and tomorrow I don't have any hair. So you felt you took control of it. I did completely. Now as I said you're a chef not an easy profession at the best of times um did you have to take a pause on work and and what was it like kind of trying to manage treatment and your passion your career i did take a pause for a bit because uh things just got out of hand uh i had constipation a day and idea on the next day and an acidity on the third day i had no idea what's happening to me mm-hmm. so uh eventually i did take a pause for four months until my chemo ended and it was also the time of covid when the infections going around So I decided it's better I stay at home rather than dealing with covid at this point of time. Mm-hmm. So after chemotherapy I went back to work and I worked for a bit until I actually got covid. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. It's um how did work support you though? Because I'm sure you think as you mentioned there, you know, immune system tiredness levels. What was it like transitioning back? Now uh, it was difficult because uh people don't understand 
that especially during uh, radiations, you are walking around with a burnt chest. I had skin broken up in a lot of parts of my chest. And then I was on menopause and I'm still on menopause. So I get hot flashes all the time, which people don't understand what they are. But I was also dealing in a hot kitchen. So I have gas ranges in front of me. I have the oven and I have the salamanders where there is heat all around. So at one point of time, I thought my body's burning. <laughs> You've been awarded the Hero of the Kitchen, the Caterer Middle East Awards, which were really, really recent for this year. What was it like to get that recognition from the industry, Prachi? Uh, it was phenomenal because uh, it was something, Caterer Middle East is just something that you look at. It's a magazine lying on the, around on the table. I never thought that I, my name would be there. So uh, now I'm really happy. Outside of the kitchen, you haven't been resting there either. A quick look on your Instagram shows illustrations communicating some really important messages about cancer, some beautiful watercolours, fashion you're now turning your talents to. It's, it sounds like there's like an amazing opportunity really to pursue some other passions and hobbies. Has it felt like that? I do. In fact, I um, even after, after having both my breasts off, I was advice that I should not be doing. Uh, I used to do kickboxing earlier. I was told not to do boxing for a while because of the risk of uh, lymph nodes being removed, etc, etc. One day I woke up two months after my surgery and I said, you know what, I don't know if I'm alive tomorrow. I called up my coach and I said, look, these are my shortcomings. We need to work around it. He said, why are you coming back to the gym? I said, no, I cannot stay like this. Who knows what's going to happen next year? The next day, I started boxing. Today, I have the complete strength in my hands. And I'm glad I didn't listen to anybody who said, no, don't do something. And you'll find me every weekend in my boxing gym. (laughs) (laughs) So, Prachi, can I ask you then, what do you feel like breast cancer has taught you about life and about yourself? I mean, your strength is just shining, shining through. Did you realise that you had that strength in you? Uh, not until I ran 17 kilometers during my radiation. <laughs> I wanted to do that. And today I think, why didn't I run 21? <laughs> You've got all the time in the world to be. So, and, and what about what it's taught you about other people? Uh, I don't listen to people anymore because people gave me random advices. And at one point of time, I told them, if you're, if you're not dealing with cancer, you can't give me an advice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not entitled to an opinion. No. <laughs> So I can tell by your look in the eyes, this is not the end of the passions and the productivity. What are you working on now? What are you looking forward to in the future? Uh, I decided to get uh, my ARC merchandise growing and uh, I'm working on that. I'm working for breast cancer awareness, especially in terms of illustrations, because people would ask me, uh, why why are you not coming to work? And in fact, there was somebody who texted me saying, I thought you must be bored, which is the reason I'm texting you when I was during my chemo. Mm. So I said, no, this I need to speak. And I started drawing about it because I think people understand when you draw rather than read. People don't like to read. The attention span these days is minimum. So rather than that, if I, if I write ovaries for you, but if I draw the ovaries for you, you will look at the drawing. <laughs> Have you become quite practiced at drawing ovaries now? I bet you have. So I draw and I illustrate and I, in fact, took an art workshop with Al Jalila Foundation as well, where I I taught, I mean, I had an interaction with other cancer patients to draw your feelings because that's what I did during my chemotherapy. I had a diary and I used to draw my day. 
used to draw whatever I ate that day. I used to draw the mint that I see on the road or the time on my watch and how many kilometers I walked. I had all that on my art journal. One thing a day. If it was my therm- my uh, thermometer to check the temperature, I would draw my thermometer or my medicines. <laughs> your Instagram is just beautiful and I'm just completely in awe of you. I really, really am. I'm, I'm going to share it now. It's Prachi Kulkani underscore art. From the kitchen to the canvas, um, my goodness, just keep on keeping on. It's wonderful to meet you. And thank you so, so much for bringing that positivity, that spirit, both to the station here, but also to the wider world here in Dubai, Prachi. Thank you. Thank you so much. Stay thank well. You. Keep us posted. Thank you. And I absolutely love your cookie scarf. <laughs> I think we need to uh, get those out in Dubai. Next stop, the catwalk. Talking bones now with Paul McNamara, consultant in orthopaedics, joining us from OrthoPro Clinic at Science Park. He is the man that helped me get up Kilimanjaro. How are you, Dr. Paul? Nice to see you. Great. Thanks, Evan. And thank you very much for having me on the show. Now, you are a very, very busy man indeed. What is keeping you busy in clinic right now? Well, people have been fairly static, I would say, you know, in this big, long summer that we've had. And they're all going to get outside and start running around. Mm -hmm. And uh, I suppose people are starting to kind of get injuries from that. And um, some of this stuff is fairly common sense. You know, just don't go into hard and fast in the first kind of few weeks, you know. But after that, you know, just gradually build up. I've noticed certain sports as well, okay. which we can talk about, yeah, like go on. paddle. You know, that seems to be one of those things that really, you know, for middle-aged people, hey, <laughs> it is a big problem, actually, because <laughs> it's definitely more squash than tennis, I can see. Yeah, it's interesting because I played tennis when I was younger. And when paddle started kind of exploding all over the city, my husband got really into it. And I was like, yeah, let's go along and start playing as a couple. Mm-hmm. First of all, I would say not good for relationships. <laughs> Secondly, not good for my knees. What is it about some of the movements in paddle that can be particularly unkind on joints? I think for... Any, dare I say, middle-aged, which I'm we all 40, are. it's fine. And when we get these kind of big transferences of forces, you know, when we go for what we call uh, <clears throat> cutting sports, like, for example, if you're playing rugby or football, these aren't really great sports for, like, as we get a little bit older. Mm. We need to be doing sort of more repetitive-type sports. You know, that, that's why kind of running or good fast-paced walking is probably the key to staying fit and active and being able to fight another day. Yeah. Unless, of course, you're really well-conditioned to start with. No, <laughs> I'm not. What about cycling and swimming? Always come back to kind yeah, of low an, impact. exactly. These are non-impact type sports that I really encourage a lot, and uh, and also just walking. You know, just get out there, nice fast paced walking. Do it in in a group. We're getting the weather for it. So, uh, and obviously we've got this thirty thirty coming up. Um, so these are really the key to sort of staying healthy and active. You are quite often um, there with patients and surgeries and I'm curious in your time in working in orthopaedics how has that technology changed and I guess what are you getting a bit nerdy and excited about when it comes to technology AI and and kind of where the future can go obviously you know, the, there's a, all sorts of stuff that comes into the market. And unfortunately, you know, orthopedics is a market like everything else. And a lot of people and a lot of companies push a lot of very fancy things towards mm. us our way, not least the robots, which obviously gets people very, very excited. Um, I would be very reticent to say that a robot at the moment gives us any benefit over a good, well-trained surgeon. Um, there's a lot of noise out there saying that it, uh, you know, that it's better. It certainly isn't, in my view. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will be the future. Um, you know, as we're like driving a car like a Tesla, we'll be able to you know, have driverless cars, but we're not doing that at this stage. So I think you have to be 
people have to be a little bit careful. Um, I can give you a really good example of that. Um, about 20 years ago, there was a, a dual incision approach for a hip replacement, something that I love doing. And it really kind of attracted a lot of very, very good surgeons in London to start doing this. Um, and then we saw videos of this, and it was just utterly barbaric. I mean, there was an awful lot of uh, x-ray for a start. I mean, they were spraying around a lot of radiation just mm-hmm. to do this. But it called a lot of very, very good surgeons out. I mean, all sorts of articles in the press at the time. Um, that's why things have to, you know, you have to take a step back, you know, and actually not uh, believe all the hype. What about things like hip and knee replacements right now? I mean, we're getting, and I think it's great, you know, we're getting in more of an aging population in Dubai. Mm. People are choosing to stay here and and, and live here longer. Does that mean Mm. that you're getting older patients on your your table? Well, actually, the kind of emphasis on hip and knee replacements is much younger now. I mean, we know that the implants are probably going to last longer than, say, the ones that were originally designed in 1962 by Sir John Charnley, who was actually British, um, despite what the Americans think. Um, (laughs) And... um, I mean, effectively, we think we're going to get maybe 25 years at least. We don't have the long-term data on this, but that means we can put them in a lot younger. I mean, my first hip replacement in this city was a 14-year-old boy. You know. Wow. Was that because of, of a genetic yeah, or congenital no, problem? No, he had, he had a, a nasty road accident and oh, his gosh. hip was completely destroyed. My paediatric orthopedic colleague at the time had said, you know, there's nothing I can do. Uh, clever, cut his pelvis and, you know, realign it. We have to just go for a hip replacement. The boy was, you know, running around after eight weeks you know it was was quite amazing now how long that will last we don't really know but i'm going to say minimum 20 years Mm -hmm. i mean that's basically getting his life back at that stage you know i've done a a knee replacement in a 29 year old who was a physical trainer who had a nasty infection as a as a kid you know again he said he got his life back from that and he can do his job and he can work effectively in dubai as a result of that Uh, so this is getting a younger and younger the innovations aren't necessarily in the actual implants, a bit like the cars, it's the bits around it, the sort of pain relief and the nursing and the physio that we get really good understanding on now. And we, we, you know, we have really great resources here in terms of that aftercare. My mum had a knee replacement a few months ago and didn't get that much in the UK. I think she was sent off with a photocopied piece of paper and, and sent on her way. Mm. And it is that prep. It's getting kind of match fit, I mm. guess, for a surgery, mm. timing it right. And then making sure you're doing everything in your, you know, in your power to, to heal well and, and keep moving. So mm-hmm. you're working with that surgeon for the best possible result. You're the man that injected my knees before I climbed Kilimanjaro. Um, why did we do that, Paul? Well, we'd kind of exhausted some of the conservative <laughs> options. I think you'd been struggling a little bit with the physio. There was a bit of a pressure to get this thing done before uh, mm-hmm. your date for going up that mountain. And congratulations for that. You know, it's a great effort. Um, so, yes, yeah, sometimes you need that little boost of a little gel inside the knee. What does it do exactly? Well, it basically lubricates the knee. It's just an oil, really. There's nothing really fancy about it. Um, it's... It does work. We know that, uh, you know, the randomised trials that have been going for like 30 years on this stuff, it works in about 60 to 40%, mm. uh, over 40%. It doesn't work. Um, I noticed it probably works more in the active patients. Interesting. Um, so, but I never give it as a first line. I mean, and I think most surgeons shouldn't give it as a first line. You should send people off for physio and, a few, and anti-inflammatories, maybe tell them to lose a little bit of weight mm-hmm. and then come back at about six to eight weeks. And if you're struggling... Then we can do. We can offer this. So we've discussed this before. I have very little cartilage in my knee and mm. was in an awful lot of pain a few years mm. ago, and I have to say. 
me touching wood, no knee pain of mm. late. And I think a big part of that is I'm not training especially hard, but I mm. am kind of active. I've shifted a few kilos. Mm. Um, so, so far, so good. So I'm not planning to get onto your operating yeah, table well, anytime soon. I don't want to put this out too much, but uh, uh, self-management of knee pain is really important. Okay. And I've seen patients with really severe arthritis that on x-ray must have a, a knee replacement, particularly one guy I remember who was an Ironman, you know, he ran, but he was just light and strong. He virtually had no symptoms. He told me his only symptoms he got was the last five to 10 kilometers of his marathon that he was doing <laughs> for dessert on the Ironman. But that tells you something that light and strong is the key mm-hmm. you know I don't want to put that out too much it's going to put me out of a job but no no but it's but it's true there are things that with, are within our control definitely um, Irish Michael's been in touch Irish Michael saying can you please ask Dr Paul I've had some issues with my right shoulder where there's been some limited rotational range of motion after numerous consultations and scans I had an MRI the doc mentioned the only way to fix it was through surgery and mentioned about there being a cyst near the rotator cuff area I'm 35 tall and slim keen golfer I have heard a friend of mine doing something similar and he was not the same again is mm-hmm. surgery the only way to go definitely not i mean i don't know on your particular case michael but the thing is i think there's a surgeon has to, had to have a conversation about the conservative options the physiotherapy and the anti-inflammatories um, and the exercises you can do mm-hmm. a lot of these things you can actually do on uh, you know you can find on youtube now you know so a lot of american physios putting themselves out there and you can self again coming back to this self-management of uh, your symptoms in within the joint and sometimes just time you know if you've been doing something that's probably a bit too strenuous um, you know usually six to eight weeks of just resting it and avoiding that particular activity might help so yeah if you do have some concerns about just someone just jumping into surgery I would hold back maybe get a second opinion um, and you know maybe they would be more conservative in their options any good shoulder men you know or women yeah, I mean, uh, Ash, my uh, partner in Orthopro, is fantastic and he's a really very talented arthroscopist. Okay. Irish Michael, I will send you the link. Um, Nana's been in touch saying, um, thank you both. I'm due to have a total knee replacement soon due mm-hmm. to arthritis. Does your doctor have any tips to share? Obviously, for anything directly medical, I'll go by what the hospital says, but would really welcome anything that I should find useful. That's a really nice question. I, I, I love the thought of patients getting as active as they can even before an operation. I mean, that's how it's been building up their muscles, particularly the quadriceps muscles, which are those ones around the front of the thigh. Um, to have active quadriceps uh, will mean that you will rehabilitate much, much better from your knee replacement afterwards. Just learning and understanding the instructions, that because when you have an operation, you may be a bit woozy from all the medications and things. So mm. if you can get hold of a physio before your operation, that would be great. Otherwise, don't feel... Uh, scared of going up the stairs and making more damage and all this sort of things. That that question I get a lot. Can I make more damage? No. Once it's kind of damaged, once those tires have lost their tread, so to speak, then it's better just to get the muscles around it active, and then we're going to put that new tread on the tires. You mentioned this off air, and Yana's asking, um, "What does your doctor think about PRP?" Mm. Well, for me, I don't think it really has much benefit. For I've done the years. Not familiar with PRP, sorry, young. Yeah, sorry, it's stem cells basically. You know, the the idea is that you, in, like in Star Trek, you can make these new cells. Like cartilage doesn't regenerate, as does not brain cells don't regenerate. Um, so, the idea is that you can put these <clears throat> very basic cells in, and they'll grow into a specific type of cell, like cartilage. And I don't think that works. So I've done a year of research on this uh, in a kind of very controlled lab, and it's very, very difficult to grow. Very 
very specific cells in that way. It's a very controversial opinion. I know I'll get shot down by a lot of colleagues, on, but I honestly think it's a waste of time and money and effort and other, you know, more basic things like just doing a good load of physio, building up the muscle, it's probably, and maybe the odd injection is probably better. Saving us thousands of dirhams. Yeah, Paul McNamara with us. Um, message here saying, I don't know if your doctor can help us with Sever's pain, heel pain in my 11-year-old. Mm. Yeah. What is it exactly? Well, it, yeah, these, these are sort of growing pains in the heel. Actually, funny enough, I did actually have that as a kid myself. I mean... Why does so, it happen? Well, it's, it's sort of where the, gro- where the growth plates are trying to fuse, where the uh, kid is trying to grow through. You get very inflamed. If the kid is probably doing a lot more sports than, uh, or a lot more active, Maybe maybe a little bit heavier. Um, this may cause this sort of symptoms. You can't really tell a kid he's stopped from playing football, no. but unfortunately, that's probably the best advice. So he's probably rest it for about six weeks, maybe, and see if it gets better. That sounds tough. Mm. Yeah, it would be for someone. So, wanting. so what happens? Is it just trying to get my head around it? Is it like a mismatch between bone and ligament, or why does it happen? No, uh, you have these little growth plates, and they get uh, get inflamed in around the ah. uh, around the kid, and particularly around the back of the heel. Um, and there's not really much for it other than just resting and, and telling, the, you know, telling them to not be as active. You might find that, and I notice that in Dubai a lot, that they might be overtraining a bit, particularly in those kind of peak growth spurts. You know, if they're doing five times a week football, that's really quite a lot mm-hmm. uh, for a child. Maybe you've got to take it down to one or two, you know, and then do match or whatever. So it, it, a lot of the time when you kind of get into the, I've, I've had people who wanting to write letters, asking me to write letters to the coach saying, could you please tell him to kind of calm down a bit, oh. you know. So it means that after school activities are very expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Got to get your money's worth. Um, You're a dad as well. Um, Are there any sports that you would be dissuading your children from doing to protect their bone health in the future? You know, I I love rugby, but obviously it does impact and it doesn't make you. I mean, you're going to lose teeth. You might have your nose punched in a few times. So, no, I wouldn't dissuade them from doing that. But obviously they've got to be really fully committed so they don't mm. get these kind of injuries. It's interesting. A friend of mine back home is a professional rugby player and he says that he's, he's, but he's a few years younger than me. But in the time that he's been a pro, mm. he says it's been amazing how much more seriously the, the clubs are taking it in terms of, um, you know, brain cognition tests, mm. making sure that everyone is, you know, really, really closely monitored. Well, really I think they have to be because the thing is today now, you know, they all go to the gym beforehand, even the teenagers and stuff to build themselves up. Mm. I mean, normally you had like a great range when I was growing up of kids and very few of them actually went to the gym and sort of pumped iron and did that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, so they really have to be very careful with this stuff. Quick, quick fire round on the text message. And one saying, um, a lady saying, I've got knee pains. I'm six months pregnant. What can I do to fix this? Physio? Oh, join the club. This was me. Yeah, physio walk, I suppose. I mean, if that brings on more pain. The thing is about uh, being pregnant is that it just loosen up all the ligaments around the knee and the hip. relaxing. Exactly. And you'll probably put it, probably got obviously a baby weight as well. Um, So this is going to have an an impact on that. If you can get out there and walk or just do some very specific exercises on on the quadriceps, that would really help. But unfortunately, it probably won't go away until that baby drops and you lose that little bit of weight. Yeah. Um, and just keeping but, active afterwards. Yeah, it's it's a long, mm. boring process. I don't it? like to put any medications in a pregnant no, lady. No, no, no. Um, but yeah, there's some really great um, women's health physios as well who might be able to help with that. Um, mm. So if you want a recommendation, drop me a little message. Um, back to shoulders. I will connect this listener yep. with, with your colleague, but saying I've got a shoulder that's dislocated 
more than 30 times. Yeah. I've had three surgeries to fix it. Bone, bone graft, shortening of tendons, insertion of a plate and screw, but it's still prone to dislocation if I put my arm in certain positions. Mm. I have hyper-elastic joints. What can I do to stabilise it without yet another surgery from a 47-year-old male who's overweight but says not obese? Yeah, I think, you know, a good physio is dedicated probably to, you know, you get physios who are dedicated to one particular type of joint uh, may help that. And then obviously the physios make us look good. We communicate a lot with physios um, to see whether they at that point they've kind of run to the end of the road and need another surgery. I'm sorry, I mean, that's a lot of surgery you've had on that Huge. shoulder. Um, getting to the end of the road with that, it sounds like, but a decent physio is worth their weight in gold, really. Um, I'm going to send you, mystery listener, um, my rehab specialist, Keith O'Malley Farrell, who climbed Kilimanjaro with me. And he was, he's was he been so, so helpful around being active in the gym, but not kind of beasting yourself. So exactly that, that stability mm-hmm. of joints. Mm-hmm. And he works a lot with some great physios as well. So um, I'll send you details of Keith. Um, we've had a, a couple of messages asking about shoulders as well. So mm-hmm. I'll send details. Where yeah. can people find you, Paul? We've run so, out of time. Yeah, we're, uh, we're in the Science Park. So that's near uh, Albasha South. Uh, kind of near the Parkview Hospital or around the ranches and that sort of end of town. Uh, we have physio there as well, by the way, and we get some really great physios. Ooh, fab. Okay. Yeah, and a fantastically equipped gym over there as well. So One last question. I've heard cortisone injections weaken the bone. Is this true? Yeah, it weakens the cartilage. I'm not a massive fan of cortisone. I, wouldn't, I would stay away from most of it now. It's kind of old hat. <sighs> okay. That was a whistle-stop tour of the body. Thank you so much. If you want the details of Paul McNamara, he is there at Ortho Pro Clinic at Science Park. Thank you so much. Thank you. Will you come back for another chat? Because you've been very popular indeed. Yeah, it's great. Thank you. Climate Conversations on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With Dubai Holding, together for the good of tomorrow. Connecting businesses and individuals to minimise food waste. There's an app for that. We're speaking to Kathy McCrash, the CEO of Win Sustainably, who wants you to bag a foodie bargain for the good of the planet. It's a brand new company, Soft Launch. And my goodness, I'm really glad we're, uh, we're among the first to hear about it. How are you, Kata? Great, thank you. Tell us a little bit about your background. Have you always worked in sustainability? And I guess what problem are you looking to solve with your app and company? So my background is in HR and payroll. I am a compliance director, nothing related to sustainability. But since I moved to Dubai, I always had like a soft spot for um, food loss. And uh, I just, it was a problem that pushed me to look for solutions. So that's how I dived into uh, the impact of climate ch- uh, of food waste on climate change. And... Um, do we have any data on it? Do we know how much food is wasted annually across the planet, tons? What what numbers are we talking about? And I, I, looking by your face, they're going to be scary. Yeah, it's 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 um, it's significant. We talk about um, billions of of, uh, of food globally, and look when you when we deep dive into UAE, it represents on a yearly basis three point eight million tons. Wow. Uh, that includes food industry as well as households, the, the supply chain. It's really the whole ecosystem. Because there are different stages where there can be food waste from, you know, the farms to storage to, you know, shops to us as individuals planning or not planning. So which area of that chain are you addressing with Win Sustainably? Well, we actually are addressing it on all fronts. Uh, I didn't want to come with a solution that was one-sided. Uh, because the impact would be not, um, not not significant enough for me. 
so we work, we offer B2B solution and B2C. So we work from supply chain to consumer. How? How is through technology. We actually blended technology with green thinking on the application that is named Qalil. And Qalil means in Arabic, reduce, less. Uh, we actually connect every type of business that has extra food items to uh, individuals or businesses that are willing to buy it at promotional prices. So basically, distributors can sell it to food businesses um, and they use it for instant consumptions anyways. And the same for local eateries. If they have extra portions, they can list it on the app and we make it available to consumers who are looking for good deals. Wow. That's, I mean, there's a lot of logistics going on behind the scenes there. You're in soft launch now. When is it going to be ready for someone to bag a bargain? And you, you've got a win box. Is that what it's called? Yes. So from November, it will be available for the end user. Uh, now we are working with, uh, with businesses, so distributors and connecting them to food businesses. Um, and how it works is that we offer win boxes that actually it's a bundle of uh, different food items at discounted price from 50 to 70 percent. So because the impact of food waste um, has different levels, it is and it has an impact on the environment, on our wallets and um, on, on, on the ecosystem. So we say we make sure that we offer the solution that benefits everybody. It's a win-win solution for everyone. That's a huge reduction in price when we think about cost of living, 50 to 70% off. What kind of food items are you expecting to go into those boxes? So depending on, it is actually categorized in type of food, so from grocery store to uh, restaurants and bakeries. From there, the user can actually browse and find their taste because Remember, we have 26,000 food businesses in Dubai only. So for sure, everybody will find something that they enjoy. Wow. So for anyone listening today, and I'm thinking about from you know a restaurant point of view, if they have their own eating, are you onboarding businesses right now? Yes, we are. Just last week, we helped a distributor that had over 600 kgs of dark organic chocolate coming all the way from Ecuador, was about to expire, had two, two weeks actually before Best Buy date, not expiry date. And through collaboration with Foodwatch Dubai Municipality, we managed to get a six month extension. And, you know, every, people could taste the, the, the amazing chocolate rather than having it, you know, end up on the landfill. Wow. Um, can I, so this is, as you say, B2B, but also B2C. It's going to be launching in November. Can you, would you mind repeating the name of the app? Qalil. Q-A-L-I-L. Is it available for download yet? Yes. Okay. So that's the app you need to get to. Bag a win box at serious, serious discount. I love the idea of you know, just checking checking what's available on any given day. We think about seasonality. We think about, you know, what people might have ordered or over-ordered. We've, you know, we think about restaurant cancellations and things happening in the kitchen there. We're going to be speaking to Omar from Boca in just a few minutes. But for everyone listening today on the individual basis, what are some of the things, uh, Kata, that you do at home with kind of food waste in mind that maybe we could be learning from as well? So actually, because I speak a lot with executive chefs, I learn along the way uh, as well. So, uh, the, the recently I learned that, um, you know, we buy our fruits from the fruit and veg market and we buy them big quantities with the watermelon. Usually uh, the remaining I would just throw away. 
now I learned to actually cut it, boil it. So boil it in hot in water for an hour and then um, and add sugar into it. And then actually it, let it cool down and the kids eat it as candy. Really? Yes, I didn't know. I also, and it's amazing. It's really tastes, it tastes like, like it's a sweet dessert and the kids think it's candy. So it's healthy and it's uh, healthy, healthier. Yeah, it was better than going in the landfill. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was yeah. doing well with composting. You're taking it to the next level. Um, we've had a number of people asking about the website. So it is winsustainably.com and there's a link on there for downloading the app. Is that right? Yes. And also an info sheet if they want us to contact them. So if you are interested in finding out more, maybe you, you didn't get the spelling, you can send me the word win if you want. I'd be very happy to send you the website um, with the link to download the app so you can get your win box. I love the sound of this. I think that's really um, the best business ideas are problem solvers. But this is beyond a business. This is really, really for the good of the planet. And oh, next step for the world. I've got a feeling this is going to just keep growing and growing. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. I love the idea of identifying that issue and not just sitting at home and thinking someone should do it. You've actually done it. Huge congratulations, Kauta. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Climate Conversations on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With Dubai Holding, together for the good of tomorrow. Just been hearing there about an app that's soon to launch that is going to be connecting businesses to us individuals. Bagging a bargain of food that would have otherwise gone to waste. One restaurant that may not even require that service is Boca. They have got a coveted green star from Michelin. Um, Joining an exclusive list of restaurants across the globe that stand out for their unwavering commitment to sustainable gastronomy. And speaking now to their Chief Sustainability Officer, Omar Shahab, speaking to us live. How are you, Omar? Good, Alan. Thank you. It's so lovely to have you with us. And you've become such a welcome voice and face of sustainability when we think about fine dining restaurants and places that really do care. Tell us a little bit about why that's been a priority at Boca, because I really feel like you were, if not the first, and certainly among the first in the city, to really put that message front and centre. But why? I think it's, uh, you know, where we are today has been a, has been a journey. Uh, we didn't achieve this overnight. Uh, it's been a lot of curiosity that we had over the years. It started off uh, from day one, when we, when we said, because we're a homegrown brand, we want to dedicate parts of our menu to feature ingredients that we can find here in the UAE. And we turn simply to the 1,400 kilometers of coastline that we have access to. So fish and seafood that is on the sustainable list on the, of the, the fishing calendar that is available on the Ministry of Climate Change website. It really started small. Uh, we then started introducing to, uh, we got introduced to a lot of local providers from Dibabe Oysters to uh, leafy greens and, and uh, organic, traditional hydroponic farms that then evolved into a conscious waste management approach. Mm-hmm. We assigned a waste officers because we really wanted to understand uh, in, in hard facts and data how much waste we're producing so that we can uh, prioritize our, our efforts. And that then, you know, we started looking at our resources overall and, and what is our real impact and then really truly measured through a carbon emission report that we uh, published recently. You are incredibly transparent um, and I think it's really 
important to note that you can't change anything unless you can measure it. You know, unless you've got that data, you, you, you can't be having those small and big wins. In terms of changes that you have made since the inception of Boca, what, what can you tell us that maybe is happening behind the scenes in the kitchen or even before food gets to the kitchen that diners might not even know about? Absolutely. The data was extremely instrumental in setting targets. Uh, it allowed us to understand what is, where is the real impact coming from, or at least where can we create or have a, a big impact. So when we realized that our biggest waste category by weight was glass, we were then able to have new conversations with our suppliers, um, ask them to maybe pick up the empty bottles after it's been consumed. Uh, we, have now, we have now a dedicated system that uh, takes obviously all of that waste into a recycling facility. It has its own challenges, but at least we're, we're taking care of that. Mm-hmm. Our biggest, our highest uh, category of waste by impact was used cooking oil. And for that, there is a very simple solution. We have two companies here in the UAE that will pick up that used oil and transform it into biodiesel. And with that, with that we are able to shave off uh, almost 5% of our overall, overall emissions. And I'm not a restaurant that does a lot of frying. So imagine other restaurants that, that, that this is a heavy part of their operation. Mm-hmm. You could shave up up to 20% of your emissions. And, you know, that we are talking about doing for the good of the planet, but there's also a huge argument for doing this for your bottom line as well, making sure you're not overbuying and food is then going going in, into, the, into, the, into the trash or, or worse. Omar, what about our responsibility as diners? What would you love us to be doing, changing, trying to be aligned with the vision for both Boca and, of course, UAE sustainability goals as well? When we set out to do this, it was really a responsibility that took uh, that, that we took upon ourselves first and foremost. We didn't want to impose or um, uh, you know tell the guests how to dine and what to eat. Uh, we had small nudges. We still have small nudges within our uh, menus that talk about the local ingredients, that highlights some of the uh, farmers and producers that we work with, that talks about some of the elements or ingredients that would be considered waste, but we introduce them back in the menu. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like tomato skin and tomato water that usually ends up uh, being discarded or uh, milk that's about to expire. We make cheese out of it, put it back into our dishes. So it was really subtle um, ideas and thoughts that we infuse within our menus because we understand that we are first and foremost in the business of hospitality. Um, we promise a dining experience of a certain level. We know that people are parting their ways with their hard-earned money. They've hired a nanny over the weekend or people want to catch up with friends. The last thing they want to think about is obviously waste and where everything goes. Uh, So the promise that we set forward is really from from our side. Now, if you are curious and you want to align yourselves with um, more plant-based eating, uh, better quality meat, Uh, or looking at more local ingredients, we are ready to answer that. Mm -hmm. And we've made all of that data and all of that information public, whether on our menus or through our website or through all of our communication mediums. I think that's such a good point in terms of getting that balance because no one wants to be lectured on the the night out. What we do want is, I guess, guilt-free dining to be able to go out and feel good about what we're eating and the thought that's gone behind it. And what about the chef's point of view? You're talking about what sounds like some really creative 
preparation, cooking, even storage techniques. Do the chefs lean into this or do they kind of rolling their eyes at you, the chief sustainability officer? I think uh, I think most professionally trained chefs um, are uh, by by trade built to maximize the utilization of every ingredient that uh, enters the restaurant. Now, of course, if you ask most chefs, they'll tell you that they don't have waste in the in the restaurant. But I think uh, it's really highlighting the importance of uh, of, of these techniques, uh, introducing them or uh, or narrating them to the public mm-hmm. in a way that obviously resonates with them. That's um, that's something really critical, um, and and shifting the entire conversation from um, luxury ingredients to lo- to looking at maybe humble ones that we have access to here, but amplifying their flavors through preservation techniques, through fermentation, through pickling, through roasting. So really trying to um, get the, uh, you know, get, get, get the shift and, and the focus towards that more than, more than anything. And lastly, if we're going to come to DIFC tonight to join you in Gate Village and enjoy a beautiful feed, what are some of the key dishes that you feel really shine a spotlight on both your food and your sustainability? What, what's going down well right now? What are you really proud of, Omar? So if you start with a round of tapas or bites or snacks, uh, definitely recommend the local prawns finished in a gambas ajillo style or the fried calamari. Uh, two really um, phenomenal salads that we've got. We've got uh, gazpacho that is made of tomato and strawberry, both from Pure Harvest Smart Farms here in the UAE. We've got a salad that features native desert plants that grow here, khubbez, hummed, uh, and khansur. This is a, a bed of roasted eggplant with three types of quinoa and then decorated with these native desert plants. And maybe you want to finish off the main with a local sea bream that is roasted and served with a delicate uh, green curry sauce. Yep, job done. I'm hungry now. (laughs) Omar, thank you so much for joining us. Keep up the amazing work. Keep fighting the good fight. And again, huge congratulations on that green star from Michelin. So, so deserved. And it's always a pleasure to catch up. Thank you so much. If you want details of Boca, it's there. Gate Village, DIFC. And that was Omar Shahab, the Chief Sustainability Officer. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.